let me start by giving a little bit of a big picture as to what we've been looking at of late. We've been going, uh, going through this book of 1 Thessalonians, um, and uh, there are several key topics that have come out. We've been focusing on the idea of the relevance of our faith to everyday life, what happens, uh, how, how what we do in this moment of the week affects the rest of the week. Um, and it's probably, it's probably worth saying that it's, it's particularly important this morning that we remember what's gone before because of the point we're at in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. Um, the way that books in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world were, were structured, you had the sort of big picture wisdom and truth and so on uh, up front, and then you'd move into a section of instruction, one might say. And of course, the, 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 bit, the instruction was always the sort of application of what had gone before. It was always the overflow in practical living of the ideas and the truths that had gone in the first half. And the problem is that when we come to do what we do, which is divide the book up into little sections, you isolate things a little bit. But actually, what we read this morning has to be read as the overflow of what went before. Because if we don't, it's basically moralism. It's basically saying, to be a Christian, you do these things. And that's not what we want to end up saying. So, what is the background to uh, the passage that we're looking at? What have we been saying in the last few weeks? Can I encourage you, if you haven't, and especially with our new Church Suite app, you can go and listen to all the sermons that have been uh, gone, gone on in the series uh, so far. They're sort of 20 minutes each. It would take you an hour to basically be completely up to date with all that we've been listening to. Here are some big ideas that, that as I've re-listened to them, that have come out to me. Uh, one is the idea uh, that Paul wants us to live a life of gratitude for what God has done, a life that responds to all that he has done for us. And, and as part of that, that means that we live our lives with an audience of one, we live our lives focused solely on pleasing God as our response to him. Um, and thirdly, then, there's this idea of investing in eternity, um, that actually uh, all that we do is going to be uh, tested and refined, um, and uh, that which is of worth will, will join us in the new heaven and the new earth, and that that isn't uh, will be burnt away. Um, Richard last week used this image uh, from uh, Miriam and my recent return from holiday in Egypt. Um, and to cut a long story short, we arrived uh, in, um, in London to discover that they had jettisoned most of our bags uh, before they'd left. Um, they knew that the plane was at the edge of its range. Um, and that they were going to be up against immense headwinds because of the storm that was in Europe a couple of weeks ago. And so in order to try and get us home, they ditched most of the bags to make more weight allowance for fuel. Um, and unfortunately, they didn't manage. We ended up only reaching Frankfurt, which actually was kind of fun. We had a night at Frankfurt. Um, but Richard uh, used that idea to, to, as an illustration um, of how the issue isn't whether or not we make it into all that God has for the future, this, uh, the great restoration of all things. The question isn't whether we were going to get uh, back to Gatwick, eventually at least. The question was what was going to come with us. Um, and I suppose you might, push, you might push the illustration ever so slightly further 
than what Richard did last week. And you would say, what if, as we were packing our bags mournfully in the sunshine in Egypt, if we had known that some bags were going to make it and some bags weren't, that would affect what we put in them and what we bothered, what we invested in each bag, wouldn't it? Um, and there is this sense that as we live our lives today, we get to do that. We get to invest in these different bags. We get to invest in a bag that actually is just going to get destroyed and burnt up um, before the end of all things. Or we get to invest in a bag that actually is going to take us, because uh, it's going to go with us into the new heaven and the new earth. And of course, to really stretch the idea, there are certain things that can go in your bag uh, that's going to go with you in hand luggage, because that's all you've got. And there are things that can't. Anyway, we, I think we're going to stop the illustration there. But you get the basic idea. We have that slightly difficult word towards the beginning of the passage that we looked at, uh, that we're looking at today, um, right back in verse 3. In fact, it's not in verse 3. Um, it's not a good start, is it? It is in verse, bear with me, it's in verse 6, where Paul says that, that God is actually going to punish all such sins. Um, this, is, this is language that we're very uncomfortable with. We hate the idea of punishment. Though actually, I think uh, we're starting to regain a value of that. I think this whole Weinstein affair, as I've, as I've said in the, in, in the last few weeks, uh, has, has risen in us a sense of we actually want justice. We want people to be held account for the things that they have done. Um, and, and there is this sense that all of that which is not of God is going to get burnt up. And therefore, what are you going to invest in? Right back at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, there's a kind of it's summary sentence that Paul uses about what it is uh, that the people in Thessalonica have been told and have learned. Um, and it starts in verse nine, the second half of verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, You were told how, to, how you turned from the living God, uh, turned to God from the Id of idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Again, wrath is not a word that we like. But part of what Richard explored last week is this sense that if, if there's going to be this wonderful new heaven and new earth into which we're invited, it's going to be a purified world. All that is evil, all the suffering and the sin of this world is going to be eradicated. And of course, the question is, what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for everything around you? The language is clear that we have been rescued. Those who are part of God's people have been rescued from all uh, of, of that they will be included in the new heaven and the new earth. But what about the stuff around you? What about the stuff that you invest in? So that gives you a little bit of a sense of what lies uh, behind this passage. Um, just to, to re-examine it one more time very briefly, I think you could describe it in terms of two balances. Um, the first balance is the idea of what one might call work versus grace. This idea that we have been saved. There's nothing that we can do to add to the love of God and his free gift of welcome into his new kingdom. Uh, that, is, that is never in dispute. And yet, there is this sense uh, that we work towards it, we live towards it, and the way we invest impacts 
uh, what of ourselves, what of, what of that which we have invested in, uh, will actually make it through. So there's that tension, works versus grace. What we do doesn't matter in terms of our salvation, but it does matter in terms of what will last uh, that is external to us. It's the first balance. The second balance is the idea of us uh, serving each other versus serving God. Um, we've talked about how in the first half of the book we, we live for an audience of one, and yet that seems always to be expressed in the way we treat other people. Um, again, this is, a, this is another balance that we need to keep. Let me give you uh, one quick story. A few years ago, friends of Miriam's, my wife, uh, came to visit us in Oxford, um, and they came with a horde of children because uh, uh, they, had, they had four children. If you try and get a hotel in the UK with four kids, you realize it's virtually impossible. So we got in touch with my parents, who live relatively close by, and they had space to put them up. So they did put them up. And of course, they were thrilled to do so, and they welcomed them into the house, and they spent time getting to know them. Um, but they did it for Miriam. They did it because they love Miriam. If, they had, if the folks had, 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 uh, had turned up and my parents had been disinterested in them, um, had done nothing uh, for them, nothing to make them feel welcome, yes, that would have said something about what, um, what they felt about my, uh, Miriam's friends, but of course it would have reflected on what they felt about their daughter-in-law. There is that sense that the way we treat those that God loves is indicative of how uh, we treat God and what we think of God. So there's those two tensions, uh, the, the role of how we live um, and that sense of uh, how, our, uh, how we serve God by serving other people. And we need to keep those two tensions in mind. Because at this point in the book, we delve into the nitty-gritty of what life looks like in the light of some of these big ideas. And it pivots simply on this idea of pleasing God. Did you notice that right at the beginning? Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And here's the key thing, and I think this is the key thing I actually really want to say this morning, is that pleasing God, as we see here, isn't about, a, 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 about our big successes for God. Um, we, some of the language we've been using has that sense of what we invest in and what comes back. That has it's quite businessy language. And it's easy for us to reduce this to that sense of what I accomplished for Jesus. Um, that's the thing that will survive into the new uh, heaven and new earth. That's what it means to please God. But actually, that's not where Paul goes. Where Paul goes is into just the, the nitty-gritty of everyday life, um, into how we treat people um, at all opportunities. Um, and, and those people who are both uh, brothers and sisters in, uh, in Christ, in the church, and those who are, for want of a better term, outsiders to the church. Um, so that's the key thing that we're going to explore, is what does it mean to produce uh, what we talked about as gold, pure gold that has been refined and purified for the kingdom of heaven in the way that we treat each other uh, in big ways and small in everyday life. And, and what we'll also partly see in this is that that is about mastering our passions. Um, it is about being able to serve other people because we've learned how not to serve ourselves. Um, so we'll see how some of these 
ideas come through. Finally, we get to our passage. <laughs> um, and I think our passage really reflects on two core passions um, and how we are to treat them <clears throat> and how they relate to the way we treat other people. Um, those two core passions or two uh, core elements of our life are sex and success, okay? Sex and success, try saying that without your teeth in. So, uh, you probably noticed verses three and following is that the first bit, it's, it talks about sex. Let me just point out a few things that pop up from the way that Paul talks about sex in this little section. We'll stop saying that word now. Um, the first thing I noticed is that, it, that our, our, our attitude begins with holiness. Remember this tension of serving God through loving other people? Actually, the, the beginning of our attitude towards sex is holiness. It is living for God. And that, that holiness comes before love. You see, love gets introduced in a big way in verse 9. He talks about uh, sort of family love. Um, but in fact, of course, as we've said, they're both two sides of one coin, that we live uh, to... Uh, to please God, and that in this matter, verse 6, no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. Um, so there's that fundamental idea of holiness. What is holiness? It is being, it's about being completely set aside for a special purpose, basically. When I was, um, when I was starting out in the music industry, and um, uh, this is years ago, we, I, I got my first Macintosh computer. And, and when you're recording music, the main thing that you want the computer to be able to do is never glitch. You don't want to get five minutes through the most rec wonderful recording and then just the tiniest little error appear and you get, you get these little sounds um, because the processing power of the computer has, uh, has tripped up. That's the one thing you want of that computer. And therefore, and now these days, the, the, the kind of work, uh, the processing involved in that is very straightforward because we've got much more powerful machines. But in those days, the, one of the ways you, you, you did that is by keeping your computer pure. You didn't have your email on there. You weren't even connecting it to the internet. Uh, you didn't have word processors or photos or anything else. You had this computer that was purely for recording audio so that nothing else could stand in its way. And that's a little bit of an image of holiness. Um, it, that computer was set apart for a purpose. And we are set apart for a purpose. We are to be holy, set apart for God, um, and that is to be a 100% uh, set apartness in the way that we treat others, particularly here in terms of our sexuality. Um, and you'll notice that this, this was challenging in, 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 in that day and age because people couldn't imagine a Christian view of sex, this idea of being able to be disciplined, being able to master our passions. Did you see that in verses 4 and 5? Each of you should learn to control their own body uh, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in, not in passionate lust like the heathen. Uh, the, in, the, in the Greek mindset, uh, the sexual uh, urge was just something that was uncontrollable, and it meant that there was immense promiscuity, and it was one that, of course, favored men over women. 
Demosthenes, uh, who was a Greek philosopher a few hundred years before Jesus, uh, expressed uh, the view of sexual purity uh, this way. He said, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. So imagine women living in that world where your husband expected, they were so, their sense of their own controllability meant that they they had to go out and and have adulterous relationships with other women. They had to go to concubines. In fact, if you went to a concubine and not to to other married women, uh, you were viewed as, as as a picture of holiness. How have you managed without both prostitutes and uh, other married women. (laughs) It's extraordinary, isn't it? To our ears, that was the world into which uh, Paul is writing this letter, saying, no, there is this absolute purity between you and your partner that must remain as it is. And that is so that you do not wrong each other, the husbands and wives uh, in other marriages um, uh, around you. And you can do this because you are no longer a servant of your own passions. You're a servant of God. You're no longer living to please yourself. You're living to please God. And by doing that, you you can have a right way of treating everyone else. And it would be remiss of me not to to just say very simply that if there are those of you uh, for whom this is a struggle, for whom... uh, you are being tempted uh, to be unfaithful. Don't. Just don't do it. If you find yourself starting down that line, maybe with uh, flirtatious interactions with somebody at work uh, or something, that's something that you maybe wouldn't be completely honest about with your partner. Just don't. Stop um, right now. I can I just, I, it would be remiss of me not to say that out loud uh, in case uh, any of you are struggling with that. For those of you that are, that are not married, I suppose this idea of whether or not you're wronging uh, uh, your brother or sister is tied up in, uh, in how you are treating your own potential future partner and those of uh, the people around you. How are your sexual interactions uh, with others honoring those that, to who, that the person to whom you might end up married or the person to whom those around you might end up married? There we go, some things to think about. Um, I want to say one more thing about sex before we, before we move on. And that's simply this observation, that Paul was willing to say something that was massively countercultural. He was asking these people to have a view of sex that was massively different from the world around them. And as we understand the view of the world around them, we think, absolutely. But of course, that remains the same today. We are not to take our cues of what it means, what a right right view of sex is from the world around us. We need to be willing, and it takes so much courage, uh, to view sex differently and to be different from the world in the way that we view what is appropriate uh, sexually and what it means to wrong uh, each other sexually. Uh, I'm not going to say any more on that. I just thought it was worth pointing out. So that's the sex bit. Um, we are to be holy, uh, uh, we are to be set apart, uh, we are to be living to please God, 
purely and not our own passions. And by doing that, we are enabled to live in a way that loves and honors everyone else. Here's the other passion that Paul talks about, success. Um, Paul was a success, vocationally speaking. I mean, that's certainly the way we view him. Actually, he dealt with all sorts of failures, but the way that, the way that we view him is of this guy, this mighty entrepreneur who spread the gospel out through uh, the ancient world and who transformed the world for Jesus. There is no doubt, uh, there's, no, there's few people in the world have a longer Wikipedia entry, I'm sure, than the, the Apostle Paul. This man was a success. And when we start talking about this idea of investing in eternity, it is very easy to uh, read that through the lens of Paul's success. And I don't know about you, but when I do that, I find myself feeling immensely intimidated because I am, I am not uh, having that kind of impact. I, I'm, I'm not, not even close. Um, those of you who are in your 30s or 40s uh, might be having what might be called a midlife crisis. I, I know that certainly for me that's been a thing where, and I've had, and actually it's come up in several conversations with me recently, that sense of disappointment that I'm simply not making the impact on this world that I thought I was going to. The Wikipedia entry uh, on Jez Carr is simply a lot shorter than I'd hoped it would be by this point. Right? Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of you will have some sense of that disappointment. Um, it is easy when you come to read Paul and that kind of, yeah, success for the gospel kind of attitude, um, to feel just massively judged and condemned and guilty for the fact that our lives don't seem to have accomplished what his had. But of course, that is a major misinterpretation of what Paul is saying. Um, it is... We, we must not conflate uh, success, uh, that the creation of, of gold for the kingdom of God with worldly success, earthly success. And Paul really wants to drive that home uh, in this second half of our passage. Look with me at uh, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. There's a beautiful uh, sort of um, contradiction in there. He's basically saying, be ambitiously unambitious. Um, be restless in your desire to be still. Um, Paul is keen that we don't load our sense of what matters in the kingdom of God uh, to what we accomplish. Um, that was not how he viewed it, and that is not how we are to view it. No. Uh, it's, as we've said, it's in, our, it's in the beauty and the holiness of our interaction with other people. And that means that we have to challenge the way we think about work. One of the things that we've been driving home about the book of 1 Thessalonians is that it makes your work meaningful insofar as it gives you an ethical framework and a meaning framework for everything that you do. But actually, at this point, it's as if Paul is saying, yeah, but don't overstretch that. Actually, be satisfied with a quiet life. That is where 
you might honor God best. In terms of the language of being mastered by our, uh, by our passions or mastering our passions, one might say, and this is certainly my own personal battle, um, that my own issues with uh, a longing for affirmation give me an enormous desire for success, uh, enormous desire to be admired. Um, I hope some of you relate to that. Anybody relate to that? None at all. No? Okay, fine. Um, there were one or two, one or two nods. But actually, if we are living out of gratitude, if we're living out of a certainty that we are loved, if we're living out of a certainty that God affirms us, he created us, he has his purposes, they go way beyond us. Uh, we do not need to strive to, for the world to see us as a success. We do not need to strive for our Wikipedia entry. Um, you are loved. Uh, you are affirmed. Allow yourself to be satisfied with a quiet life, vocationally. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, actually, for, for many of you, that, that you won't go off and do wonderful, great things, but you don't do it in order to be viewed as wonderful. You do it out of that stillness that comes from knowing that you are loved uh, and affirmed by God. Um, As, as, the, as that little bit of the passage goes on, let me just give you, uh, just point out how the, how the passage ties itself up. Uh, uh, it, it, the encouragement is that as part of that, we're willing to do work that actually just uses our hands. That, in the Greek world, that was, um, that was very demeaning, this idea of work with your hands there in verse uh, 11. Um, but it got, you know, Paul's saying, get, just, just be willing in humble service to each other to work with your hands. Get dirty uh, in your work. Uh, so that you will be uh, able to contribute uh, your part to the central pot uh, out of which so many of these churches uh, lived. Um, and you do all of this to win the respect of outsiders. Uh, you do this partly so that people will be struck by your willingness to get your hands dirty, to live the quiet life simply in service to your community uh, around you, loving them rather than being mastered by a desire to be greater than those around you. So, as we respond to that which lies behind the, uh, in the history of Christianity, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we are rescued uh, and brought into the new kingdom, and as we think about what lies ahead of us, our future in that kingdom where everything is going to be purified uh, and made good. How are we then to live? We are to live with purity and quietness, in love for each other, in service of each other, uh, mastering uh, those passions which allow us to turn ourselves inwards on ourselves uh, in, a, in order to serve others around us. Let's just take a moment of quiet. And let's think about the week that lies ahead. Don't just think about your nine to five if you have one. Think about all of the interactions that you're going to likely to have at home, uh, with family, with friends. Um, commit yourselves to holy, loving, humble interactions that draw people uh, towards Jesus 